Hello there, and welcome to another episode of the Military Mindset for Business podcast, where I'm chatting to Jim Bocal. Now, Jim's got a great story how he started off again in the military, um, transitioned out of the military and having some you know interesting corporate jobs, but then in a moment of madness, joined uh, the entrepreneurship race and started a, a award-winning company called Blue Ridge. Now, Blue Ridge is one of the leading cybersecurity consultants around the place. And for me, I'm really interested to do this chat today because even though I've done a lot of business, started lots of good businesses, I feel like I'm okay at business, but I feel that cybersecurity is a massive gap in my understanding and awareness of what I need to do to be a great business leader. So I'm really looking forward to this, being able to pick Jim's brain about cyber, what it means, what the threats are, and what I can do about it. Hey, Jim, welcome. Thanks, Pete. Great to be here. Mate, uh, absolute pleasure. So, mate, cybersecurity, um, can we, before we start unpacking your journey through Blue Ridge and this, uh, this great award-winning company that you founded, but go back, I do like to start these chats with, how did you end up in the military? Where did you grow up and why did you get into uniform? Yeah, so I'm born and bred in Geelong, Victoria. So I didn't have much choice, but I'd go for the Geelong Cats in the AFL. <laughs> um, and yeah, I had a fairly good childhood, um, nothing too too crazy, and essentially um, lived in Geelong until I joined the Army at, at around 18, I think it was. Um, very sporting and fitness-orientated childhood as well. I think I heard that you follow the NBA, so I, I played wow. a decent decent level in a lot of basketball actually which carried over into the military as well Mate, i'm just uh, going to catch i'm just going to catch you there for a second because of my little nba plug i'm a mad san antonio spurs fan hence my hat here and my life took a dramatic change the other day when the san antonio spurs won the draft lottery so we are getting victor Wembanyama. yes um i could talk all about that but uh <laughs> i'm going to refrain um go spurs go mate so yeah. active fun fit lifestyle 18 you joined the army, what? And then off to Kapuka? Yes. Yeah, it was a bit of a funny story, actually. Um, as I was finishing high school, uh, I did okay, but not amazing um, for a few, couple of reasons. <laughs> um, and when you get your score, you know, I was looking in the newspaper back then, actually checking what your score was and your workout, which direction you want to go. And university was sort of always on the list. Um, I was actually between being a primary school teacher was number one, um, hopefully in PE because fitness was a big thing for me and outdoors. Um, but then the idea just popped into my head. I'm not too sure how. Um, well, maybe I'll join the army yeah. um, because I did pretty well at IT and I had a bent towards IT uh, in high school. Uh, and I like fitness, so I'm like, well, why don't I join the IT trade in the army, and I can do can do both. It's it's funny you mentioned the uh, when I went through high school, it was called TR that you got out. Yeah. I think it's called UAI or something like that now. Or, but I was literally the same thing. You know, you rock up to the post office early in the morning. They were handing out the envelopes. Um, my heart did sink when I saw that number <laughs> come through. And then it was a matter. <laughs> then it was a matter of thinking. Not what do I want to do, but what course will actually take me because uh, my options were very limited. So I was basically looking around the bottom of the barrel to see, will this score get me into anything at all? Yeah. Um, and I ended up getting into horticulture, um, but I didn't, I didn't finish that degree. But anyway, another story. 
Less of me, more oh, of you. <laughs> yeah, so I made a, I guess it was a pretty quick decision. And um, before I knew it, I was at the Defence Force recruiting in Melbourne City and then, yeah, off to a bus to Kapuka. And what, tra- um, pretty, what trade did you join? Oh, what's yeah, that, sorry? What trade did you join? Did you go in with a specific role uh, recruited in? Yeah, it was a funny one. Like, it all worked out really well now as well, looking back. But at the time, I don't recall, like, a huge amount of information to sort of objectively assess which job to go into. And even the the trade I went into was was a bit of a funny title at the time from memory. Um, but I fell into the right one. So, yeah, I joined the uh, Corps of Signals in the information systems or essentially the IT trade or as a geek as they're affectionately known. Yep. What was the tech level of technology like? So you get through Kapuka, then you go and do your initial employment training or basically your initial skills to do the job. What kind of equipment were you using or what kind of role does a young um, Infotech signaler do? Yeah, I had a great time at, um, at my IAT training too. It was almost a year of IT training at the School of Signals. So I really um, did well in that environment when it was quite sort of academic as well and with a practical flavour. Uh, essentially, when once you get out to the units, um, there's kit that's a set, the, the deployable information in, environment or the deployable local area networks. So mm-hmm. when the Defence Force deploys on field or deployments, uh, they essentially take out the protected and the secret networks, but in a deployable version, so the the units and the commanders can still access uh, the applications and mission platforms that they need to. And there's a number of other networks these days, but um, essentially it was the deployable, an extension of the deployable strategic network, so they can still do their job out outfield. Uh, it was not just your stereotypical IT job in the army either, because in certain units when you're moving moving around quite regularly on more on the um, exercise side of the house. There's a lot of kit to pack up and um, roll out and then you move again. So it's quite an um, arduous uh, job at times, depending which unit you're at as well. A uh, huge amount of equipment to to lug around and, and roll out. Yeah, like my, um, I was a bit allergic to field, to be honest. Um, you know, it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't, wasn't my finest uh, hours, to be honest. But I do remember one night being outfield as a liaison officer with uh, the 3rd Brigade Headquarters, uh, the brigade. And the brigade commander decided, hey, let's um, let's move this headquarters 15 kilometres at night time. Yeah. Um, so literally the whole pack up, get it all on the truck, move somewhere else. So basically we had to, you know, came dark. And by the time the sun rose somewhere else, it was the whole headquarters, tents, you know, cam nets, vehicles, security positions. And we had to, be, uh, you know, the job was to be fully functional, um, you know, at that point. And uh, I've, I've got some bad, I was terrible at Bush, mate. I really, yeah. not, not, that was fine, third not brigade, fine. was it? What was that? That was in three brigade headquarters. So up at, I think it was up at High Range or Shoalwater. Yeah. So um, that was my first posting, was at, um, uh, so I barely left Geelong as an 18 year old, actually, and just for a basketball tournament and, and something else. So I didn't, didn't get out too much or not too many holidays. And yeah, first posting Townsville, which I didn't know much about at the time. And um, yeah, that was my first four years, and it was fairly fairly hard field time. Yeah, actually. that'd be um, 
that's the third combat signals regiment i imagine and it would have been doing a lot of support at the brigade headquarters and at that time uh, a light brigade i imagine not a lot of vehicles not a lot of uh you know vehicle mobility just let's um let's just get out there like light infantry and and hit the ground yeah yeah we had the vehicles luckily which um you know there was a bit of banter about the the it trade when they go yeah. field but we had a yeah a lot of equipment so yeah uh, like i'm Ramy, mate so my soldiers had all yeah. the kit they needed out bush mate they were That's they nice. were never uh they never went without and um so mate from the signals perspective i, I you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you've got half the guys that sort of focus or probably more than half that focus on combat signals, which is the communications, the radios between the units too. But you were really uh, more of a strategic um, to be able to get, so basically so that a commander out wherever they are out bush can flip open a laptop, have satellite communications back to their high headquarters and basically run the battle from out in the field. Yeah, that's it. In signals, there's a few different trades and um, the other services combine some of these trades. But in the Army, uh, one trade is just mainly radios. Uh, so the radio operators and the crypto and, and that side of the house. There's also technicians and electronic warfare trades and now a cyber trade. But uh, yeah, we were in the IT trade. So it was quite a broad like in industry, you can really specialize in certain parts of IT and, you know, work your way up to an, to an architect on a specific product. Um, but in the army, you have to be fairly broad. So it's everything from uh, building and managing servers. So all the Microsoft based servers and all the, you know, the laptops and everything that go with that um, to the networking side as well. Um, so that's like your Cisco type uh, networking, um, crypto, a little bit with the satellites uh, and all the applications that go on that as well. And when we talk crypto, we're not talking about crypto coins like uh, most listeners will be listening <laughs> to here. We're talking about, can you just a quick explain of what, what military crypto means? It's not uh, Bitcoin? A lot of those types are into that, but no, it's, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's more on the cryptographic side where you're protecting uh, your communications, including on the radios as well, but you're protecting your information, whether that's in transit um, or, or even at rest of all your, um, you know, up to sort of secret level um, information. Uh, interesting point there, because I'm already seeing um, the seeds being sown in Blue Ridge here, you know, that this initial, these initial skills that you got as probably what, 19 year old working around, you know, the hardware and the software, um, Tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, for the public consumption, just about security. I know you can't talk about anything sneaky peek or anything like that, but the six cores are really into, you know, protecting our communication assets and also disrupting, you know, the assets of others. Can, did you do much? Was that part of your space as well? Yeah, it's similar to industry in that even if you're in the IT um industry and you you're maintaining corporate networks um there's a security flavor to that hopefully but as we see in the news every week sometimes there's not as much as there should be um but yeah i guess due to the levels of the information you're dealing with and the, the environment in the military there's there's always a pretty strong focus on the security and there's lots of different aspects of security um not just cyber security and cybersecurity is the, the sexy word. Of, it was always just information security. 
Yeah. But uh, the military is probably a lot bigger than industry on things like physical security, personnel security, and some other components of that as well, um, which there is a lot of crossover depending what areas you work in to still make sure you're considering, you know, at the most basic level, physical security. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm mainly in the cyber security field, even though there's quite a bit of crossover. And this training or these drills, that this becomes just par for the course in the military, this level of, you know, protecting our information, you know, making sure that information is on a need-to-know basis. Um, what I want to have a quick chat to you about is your, like, for those of us in the military, getting to deploy in operations is really a highlight of our, of, of our career. And a lot of people might not sort of realize, but we actually want to deploy and we want to go out and, you know, practice what we do in the real, in the big game. Um, can you share any thoughts or, you know, experiences that you had on your deployments? Yeah, so I deployed uh, pretty early in my career as a young 20-year-old. I uh, got the call up uh, pretty early on in, da- in the days of the Iraq um, war. Uh, so I was I got the call up uh, and and deployed with SecDet. It was called Security Detachment One. So I think that you know it went on to SecDet, however many twenty or something. I'm not not too sure. Um, but the the mission essentially was to protect the Australian Embassy and the Ambassador. So it was quite a small detachment at that time of of mainly CAV uh, MPs for close um, close quarter protection, uh, some infantry, and then obviously I was the signals one maintaining a fairly small little little network. And part of that's for welfare as well for the soldiers so that they can you know, email their family and, and call their family. Um, but yeah, that was a, a pretty interesting experience as I had my 21st birthday over there. Uh, no alcohol. <laughs> so- um, but it was, it was a positive experience because it was back then quite rough and ready, I guess I'd describe it. It wasn't in the green zone. Uh, I was out in the suburbs in a sort of an unused building, essentially right next to the embassy uh, in Iraq. That was a pretty cool experience as a 20-year-old. You must have been, I say this in inverted commas, lucky to get that gig as well because Security Detachment 1, by the time they build the team that they need, there mustn't have been many of you and there must have been a lot of people in Australia that would have been aching to get that gig. So a real score to be able to go and experience the, you know, the real game. Definitely. Yeah. And the, the information systems trade in the army has always been deemed a, a, a critical trade, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, but a lot of, there's a bit of a retention issue probably because there's really good options out mm. in industry um, due to the training you do get. Um, so generally they have struggled with finding the people for the deployments and obviously as that ramped up later in time as well. But yeah, I was a fairly driven, motivated, fit young man. So I guess I ticked the box that I was actually deployable. Um, and the, the section up in, um, it was 103 Signal Squadron at the time before it moved into 3CSR, was actually quite small back then. It's obviously grown a lot sense so yeah maybe right time right place as well and what was iraq like at that time i'm done to give your age away here but are we sort of looking so this is gulf war ii 
are we looking at early 2000s-ish? Yeah, as a touch after that. So it would have been 2003. Yeah. Yep. yep. And what was the what was happening in country at that time? Uh, this was not long after they'd won and sort of secured, but before the insurgency had really kicked off or the insurgency was in full swing, was it? Yeah, and we were not sheltered is not the right word, but we were in this um, sort of an unused, not 10-storey type or more um, building in, in the Burbs. Um, and then they had the headquarters back at one of the palaces. So, yeah, we weren't um, hugely involved in the broader side, I guess. We were there for quite a specific mission and, and our own little um, entity um, protecting the embassy. But um, it was pretty good at that stage. There weren't any huge incidents for Australians that I was aware of at the time. There was obviously a lot of US things happening. Um, but unfortunately, after I left, um, a few like bombings and things happened mm. uh, for people I, uh, people I knew as well. Um, so met. Maybe we um, got known about a bit more and flew under the radar right at the start. I'm not too sure. But uh, we spent a lot of time fortifying that area when I was there, which was um, pretty hard work with 1,000 sandbags or whatever it was at the time. It was probably about um, 60 degrees too, I remember. I used to drink about 10 litres of water a day. Um, But, yeah, nothing um, too crazy. There was a lot of patrols and um, out in the armoured vehicles um, protecting the sort of the the ambassador as he moved around the area what a gig mate for a a 20 21 year old private or lance corporal or you know junior ranks there um you know far away from home living that kind of experience i'm sure as you said plenty of sandbag filling and plenty of time on picket Uh, yeah yeah so mate after run through um the rest of your career how you specialized um after that deployment and what really got you to the point of saying, you know, it's been great army, but see you later. Yeah. After Townsville, um, it became a bit of a pattern actually. I was, I was always pretty driven to do well and, and I ended up progressing up the ranks reasonably quickly. Um, but army loves you to get variety, Mm. uh, generally. And it's always a bit of a battle to, to have some stability, which was part of why I ended up leaving. Um, so I ended up moving around, uh, posting every two years for the rest of my career, and I was in for just over 15. Uh, and each one of those moves was interstate. But I was always seeking variety um, to sort of do different kinds of postings, so not just do the signals regiments uh, the whole time. So mm-hmm. and I was always a bit more technical than Reggie as well, and I enjoyed, even though I, I sort of went up the ranks to stay on the more technical side, so, yeah, essentially, in a nutshell, I, um, I posted around every two years, progressed up the ranks, um, did my last posting at the School of Signals, so sort of come full circle, and loved it there as a Victorian. I was uh, finally near some family with, with kids to help out for the first time ever. Um, but, yeah, after I guess the time was right and that decision comes for everyone. Uh, it was all felt fairly natural where I, I went into my career meeting and, we just didn't know what the future looked like. And I just had a bit of a thought, um, you know, do I want to keep doing this till I'm 50? And it was, it was really nearly 100% more for my family than myself. So by then I've, I've actually had three kids. 
uh, and a wife who's followed me this whole time. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted a veggie garden. <laughs> I used to use that as the example. I had to dig one up or fill one back over once in one of my um, defence houses, which was right. terrible. Put, it, it, was, put, it, was put it back the way you got it. Yeah. yeah even if, even it. if you improve it, put it back the way you got it. So it really was like if I don't know, you know, will I be in Darwin, Brisbane, Townsville in four years uh, from now, um, more so for my family with the moving schools and my wife's career, thought the time's probably right. And it was a big decision because I I had been quite driven and got up to Warren Officer and, um, you know, put 15 years into the career essentially. But fortunately, I was very lucky and you'd never know at the time 15 years back, but the trade I joined does have good prospects on the outside. So I was one of the lucky ones. I would, I would say, because um, there's lots of options if you do make that call. Yeah, and it's one thing with the military is not every job seems to have just very clear transferable skills. Yeah. Um, but there are so many jobs with amazing just direct transferable skills, and particularly this sort of became your thing now. I always see, you know, when people transition, it's either like, man, I'm never doing that again, and they want to try and, you know, total fresh start, do something new. And other people, you know, particularly in, in my core, which was the electrical and mechanical engineers or the tradies of the army, this is what they do. They love it. And they go out and they they either go out and find jobs in this space or create businesses. Um, but your journey into entrepreneurship doesn't start quite yet, does it? So you transition out. Um, tell us about those years until we, you know, plant the seeds of Blue Ridge. Yeah, and some of my own experiences, firstly, when I separated, but then worked um, for some other companies, did shape um, me thinking we could do a pretty good job and, and create something special ourselves um, and really look after our people. So some of the experiences shaped that later on. But I had pretty good experiences as well when I um, separated, although it's always scary after a long time. And I'm pretty passionate on this side of the house with helping others separate or just give them some advice on industry as well. But yeah, I, um, after we moved back to Canberra, made, made a lot of sense with the, the clearance and the work I was in, although I was originally planning on settling in Victoria. Um, and I can tell you more about Blue Ridge, but it's quite Canberra heavy due to where we work. Um, all roads lead to Canberra, as they say. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's not many Cats games uh, at Marnie Grove, is there? There's not, there was one last year and I finally went. So that was pretty <laughs> random. Um, but yeah, I took a job um, in, a, in a government agency uh, in my first job out. And it was um, actually a little bit scary. Like I'd always um, maintained being a bit technical. But once you get to the manager level, you know, you're answering emails and you're not on the tools anymore. But the job that I, I took, because I backed myself and I did do a bit of extra study in preparation and I'm a bit of a planner, um, was more on the tools again as a network security engineer. Um, so I was a bit of a sink or swim time actually. Again, it sort of shaped some of my um, future company direction. Uh, and then I had an opportunity to join Lockheed Martin Australia, which is a big international uh, prime. And I, was, I worked on the Joint Strike Fighter program, which was a pretty interesting one to be involved with and sort of was working my, my way up the corporate ladder with them. Um, but then the opportunity for Blue Ridge um, came up and we made the jump. 
How did you feel culturally the transition whilst you were employed in either Lockheed Martin or the government agency? How did you feel the cultural changes from the military to those organisations? Yeah, I think it really varies, which makes it tough for people because there's so many different companies you can work for. I would say a, um, a big, you know, company, the co- they've spent a lot of time on, on culture um, and they're quite a defensive type company too. So, yeah, it was pretty good. A lot of structures and mechanisms in place and, you know, being around 100 years type thing should have that fairly sorted. Um if you're if you're more in the contracting space or you're in an area where you're the only one from that company, um, you can feel a little disconnected. And um, in the first job, not the company, but the team I went in to, yeah, wasn't wasn't hugely collaborative. Um, it was a bit of a shock, bit of a shock at times. But that was probably because you, I wasn't sitting in a team of from that company. It was a bit of a mix, a mixed team. So I think it really depends what environment you walk to into. And unfortunately, sometimes you don't know until you do it. Mate, somewhere here, there's a seed of entrepreneurship or I can do this myself. I picked up on something you said earlier. Is that I think I could do this or I think I could do a better job or I think I could look after my people a little bit here. When does this moment kind of crystallize to say, um, I'm going to take the plunge and, and go out on my own because it's always such a uh, a big decision, but it can be a, such a super liberating decision when you finally say, like, I'm good enough to do this. Tell us about how did that work for you? Yeah, well, so I've always been more of a like passionate and I think I'm good at more being a leader and managing people. Um, you know, sort of thrust upon you in the army as a, you know, you say you're a 21-year-old corporal and you're out outfield leading teams, there's a lot of responsibility there. So I've always been motivated more as a leader and a manager, including once I left the army to sort of climb those positions uh, and do that. Uh, entrepreneurship act- and the opportunity for Blue Ridge came to me from my two other business partners. So uh, Adam Haskard and Tom Kazan uh, had done something a little bit previously, so they had a little bit of experience in that space and they had an idea, sort of a general idea on all of this and sort of came to me thinking we'd be a pretty good team, which we are, uh, <laughs> to do this together. Um, and, yeah, it's paid off, obviously, but um, we're all, I think, a key point which we could talk about more is we're actually three different personalities and bounce and different um, personality types um, but we'll always come back to a consensus but I think that's really important so we had three key pieces uh, sort of all line up very nicely um, from our own three individual experiences thinking we could do this together at the right time because I've seen a few things on uh, a few things recently. I've watched around business and what 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 the successful businesses and what some of the most important metrics is. And I think mm. timing was was up there, if not number one. Hey, this is such an important point because I can say with zero hesitation, if I didn't have my business partner, who's you know Matt Mosley, uh, he was one of my army classmates um, with me. I would not be successful at all because my personality, 
I'm a butterfly chasing ideas guy that has a lot of problem with detail and execution. Yeah. And Matt is uh, the exact opposite. So there's a couple of books about this. One of the more common ones called Rocket Fuel, which they talk about uh, visionaries and integrators. And I actually think it would be, I, I literally would not be able to run a business, I don't believe, by myself. I could come up with a new idea like every other every other day for something. Yeah. But, getting, but ideas are worth nothing. Execution is the 95% value of the business. Now, when you can find those great synergies, so number one thing is like, Finding someone you trust is so critical. And I unfortunately lost a friendship um, you know, many years ago in my first business venture with another army mate. And it still grinds me to this day that you know my lack of understanding and lack of knowledge. Uh, and we just it just it was just such a shame. So you've got to pick your partner as well. You've got to the trust thing has to be implicit. So tell us about the three-headed monster yeah. of your team and how your dynamics work. It sounds a little similar, actually, which we we often joke about um, how you need it, but it is yeah, it's a little funny with the ideas people and the the details people. But yeah, I guess I can see why it is hard in business, and not all businesses succeed. Uh, completely agree. Without that trust and finding people that you gel with, but also trust, especially when I guess financials are involved in things later is, is actually quite tricky, I think. And we just count our, count our lucky chickens every week that we uh, the three of us found each other. Uh, we're all good humans, first and foremost, do the right thing, same morals, all driven, but different personalities actually might be hard to, to find, I guess, now that I reflect on that. Mm. Uh, but yeah. Can't agree anymore um, on the trust thing being number one. And yeah, unfortunately, even recently, I've observed a, a couple um, people come unstuck. And it's generally, from what I've seen in my limited experience, is um, compared to you, is um, the board level or founder sort of level um, things not quite working out or going in different directions. Yeah, it's a, that's a um, really interesting one. It's so one of the things that um, obviously with the trust piece is you can trust and like as much as you like, but there's a couple of things that you, that I'd highly recommend is like you know, speaking to a lawyer about getting some shareholders agreements and some, some mechanisms that you can park your, your friendship or your relationship aside and go back to those agreed facts. But you know, it, but the trusting has got to be there. Like, you know, we you know, turn over you know, millions of dollars a year in the business and, and I don't have a concept of money. This sounds funny. Like sometimes I'll go to a restaurant and I'll, for some reason, I'll look at the price of a meal and I'm like, oh, I don't want to spend 39 bucks on a steak. I'll get the $36 one. Yeah. Like three bucks, man. Who cares? Uh, then, then on the other hand, I'll, I'll spend 10 or 20 grand without, yeah, I'll just buy that. That's easy. So like yeah. I just, yeah. and so because I don't have a good relationship or understanding of money from that sort of perspective, having someone there that's covered that's super tight with the details and now matt is able to forecast our bass statements within a couple of hundred dollars every quarter it's really really a great asset now the other yeah. the other thing with how partnerships can really leverage businesses because there's purely just so much to do like yeah. how do you how do you get the time to do all of this stuff particularly when you start up you don't have you know a lot of revenue you don't have a lot of cash at hand to be able to invest in the right people 
So for me, it's been the right model, but you know, for other people out there, I know that they're brave enough to do it themselves and just crack on. But for me, the partnership, the right partnership has been the catalyst of success without doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so trust is number one. And um, yeah, on I agree with you on the personality front. We often joke about this a little bit. And the three of us actually did a personality test, which I think is pretty valuable for, well, yeah. for anyone to do, um, but business partners to do as well to help understand each other. So, yes, we've got a bit of a mix too and we've got you know, the ideas people. Um, we're all fairly balanced, but, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely the details sort of person as well, a bit that, more process-driven. This and is the disc, really disc profile, was it? Sorry? Did you do a disc profile? We did, yes. What are you, and mate, I've actually, what are you? Um, Yeah, I've been reading a few books about that. It's, uh, it's just a bit of a an interest I've got actually on the personality front, which, you know, is not only good for business, but relationships too, and also kids and, you know, just everyday human interactions. So I find that uh, side of it fascinating, actually. So on the disc spectrum, what are you? Um, I'm a, I guess, because you can, there's spectrums of which, how hardcore you are of each one as well. And I think yep. you normally have two dominant dominant ones i'm a i'm a d and a c yep yeah um so it's really interesting because i when i first did mine i was a, a di which you know means you know quite assertive jump into it make a decision quite quickly yeah um but i've got to feel that the further i get away from the military and command and this kind of structure that i, f I feel that i'm changing and I, that i don't need to be like that anymore or how much the army Oh, I guess because I was an officer, made me a D or, you know, like, yeah. but I don't think it's my natural profile. If anything, I'm, you know, look, I'd love to do it again now. I haven't done one for a few years, but to sort of see, I feel a change in myself as particularly. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I guess that's getting deep now, but like learning who you actually are. And when you're in business, especially, like you can be working pretty big, big weeks and you sac well, that's what people don't see. I guess you sacrifice a lot and, you don't always get me time and to do the things you want to do. And hopefully once you're successful down the track, that changes. But um, yeah, I think there's a bit to it that I've been reading about with the personality types that really at a deeper levels, more about your natural, who you naturally actually are. So you might not be a D, but that might be thrust upon you in your job role. And funnily enough, if you're not actually a D and you need to be a D, then that is draining all your energy because that's yeah. not who you naturally are. Um, yeah. So I find all that really, really interesting. Um, and I think sometimes when you do the questionnaires, you might answer it on, yeah, what, like what you have to do, not who you actually are. So that's a bit of a tricky one. Yeah, so the four um, personality profiles and DISC are dominance, influence, steadiness and conscientiousness. So if you've never done one, jump online and have a look because it's it's a really good insight um, into you know how you are and how to build great teams. And one of the things, just while we're on disc for a moment, and I won't spend long on this, is one of the things I've always been interested in is too many sales processes are designed for people with high that are high D. So basically, you come across each other in a some kind of sales situation, and immediate immediately is it's like, you know, do you want this or not? Are you going to buy it? Yes, no. Okay, and then if they don't say yes right at that moment, 
there's a massive leakage or people slip out of the cracks. Um, but the S's and the C's, their money is worth just as much as the people that have really dominant and, you know, spur of the moment kind of decision-making people who are steady and conscientious that they need to consider, they need all the facts, they need to do a bit of diligence and sort of work out, is this really the right for me? Now, if you design your sales process that allows the D's and the I's to jump through quickly and make the decision, we don't want to stop them. If they want to buy, let them buy. But for the S's and the C's, craft your sales process to give them the information, to nurture them, to consider them. Because if they end up becoming your customer, they are very deliberate about why they chose you and a long-term a lifetime value of client, they are less likely to jump at the next shiny thing and they'll probably yeah. stick around. Whereas yeah. you sell something to a D&I and they're like, oh, sweet, love it, let's go. They're going to be chasing the next shiny thing because that's their nature. That's it, yeah, uh, fascinating. So one of the things we like to do at Trust the Process is really make sure that when you're building a sales process out, that make sure you consider all of your audience because, like I said, the S's and C's will take a little bit longer to get there, but their money's just as good and they'll probably stick around for the long run. Um, yeah. Mate, can I come back now to Blue Ridge? Can you tell us about Blue Ridge, what you do, who's your best customers? Give us a bit of a spin on the shop. Yeah, so Blue Ridge in a nutshell is a cybersecurity and technology consulting firm. Um, the three of us that came together to create it are, all came from IT and cybersecurity backgrounds ourselves. Uh, so we're fairly proud of that, actually, that you know, everyone in the company is actually from that background uh, as well. Uh, we, when we were starting, and even up till now, um, we really were um, a large component of the company was consulting across the full breadth of cybersecurity disciplines, because cybersecurity actually can be a broad field. Um, Blue Ridge does, does it all, which is pretty cool. And that's everything from more your governance, risk, compliance, advisory, um, risk assessments, uh, all the way through to the more technical fields, which is your penetration testing, uh, which is quite a specialised field and takes a lot of training to get up to a, a fairly good penetration tester because you can do a bit of damage um, and everything in between. So that's security engineering, uh, IT, auditing, etc. Uh, earlier on, and like I said, even up until now, uh, we have a strong focus supporting uh, federal government and defence agencies. So we're in a lot of those areas. Um, working in integrated teams as a consultancy, but providing that cybersecurity and IT expertise. Um, but we're always we're pretty ambitious, and we've always been like, as we scale, which scale I guess is a whole topic in itself. Looking at diversifying, and truly, like our core focus is our people, which mm. has served us well. So when we're looking at diversifying as a business, a lot of that is around. Well, we want to make sure our people have variety um, to go do different things and stay with us and have a lot of options for their career development, uh, which is pretty cool. So there's a lot of things we have in the works, but we more recently have expanded, um, which is growing, supporting industry. So not just government and defence clients, but helping business to business, helping other businesses with their own 
cybersecurity, and that's from small to large, whether they're even a prime that has a capability or a small business, we're finding to recruit and retain cybersecurity professionals is tough, but that's our core business, and it's easier for them to come to a specialist. An Australian veteran-type specialist company is easier and and a good look for them uh, and more cost-effective and efficient as well. Funny, you mentioned doing damage with pen testing. It reminds me of many years ago, I had a mate with a HR Holden taking him for a rego check and the mechanic, his method of doing uh, pen testing for rust was just a screwdriver, just poking yeah. around the car and, oh, there's a hole. Let's work on that one there. Oh, yeah. you're going to have to yeah. fix that. Um, laughed, well, mate, crushed him. The holes, hole, holes all through the, whole, the old HR. Yeah. So, mate, I'm really interested because, to be honest, as I said, I've, I've created multiple businesses. We've got... Um, so our business at the moment, if I can give you uh, just workshops, some scenarios, because I, I really don't know what I should be looking for. My first uh, feeling about my vulnerability for uh, cybersecurity revolves around my passwords. You know, like I use LastPass, for example, because I just like everybody in the world cannot remember all of the passwords. But then all of a sudden I get an email from LastPass saying I have 127 compromised passwords and so if, if i just use our business as a bit of a role play and then hopefully other people so we've got crm software we've got teams uh we've got members in united states and spain um you know scattered all over australia we've got you know 10 odd people in australia we've got 100 odd staff in the philippines we use standard off the shelf software what should i be sort of looking at in terms of what my threats my threats are like where do i start here in protecting this what valuable asset that we've built yeah and it's really varies as well depending on the scenario while while a consultancy can be good to come in and just do a, a bit of an assessment but yep. it's such a different game i guess if you're you're providing cybersecurity on a large defense capability versus yeah. a small business it's very different and obviously the um the finances for those two clients are very different as well. Um, on the small business side or, or in general, I would say the starting point should always, it should always be about the information and protecting mm-hmm. the information um, or else you can get a little bit, you don't even know where to start. This, you know, I've got a cloud platform and someone in the US and you, you're not even sure where to start. So I would say as a business, you should always just, do a mapping and actually dedicate time uh, about where's your information. And one of the terms they use out there is like, what is your crown jewels? So you can't always do everything and you don't have infinite uh, finances either. So if you do a bit of a crown jewels assessment, like what, what is important to the business? Is that your client data, if that got out? Do you have IP? If you're making a product, you might have R&D type, type information, all your staff's information like PII, um, if that got out, uh, which you know, unfortunately we're seeing quite regularly these days with Optus and that would have been a huge financial hit with, with them leave clients, customers leaving them. So I would say just firstly, embed cybersecurity in your thinking so if you're having board meetings or planning or business plans, 
include cybersecurity to a degree, so you're thinking about it. Uh, so there's a few things like cybersecurity for board training out there now, which is good to see. Think about your information as the very first starting point. What's important? Maybe where's my crown jewels? Because then you really dial it into focusing on what's important. And then, yeah, generally there's after that, there's there's quick wins, I guess I'd call them, or best bang for buck, simple, simple measures once you know all that. Because again, you only have finite resources. For the bigger companies, there's a few frameworks out there that are well publicized. But again, you might not even understand it or know where to start, but there's things like the Essential Eight, if people have heard of that, that generally is the best place to start. And they estimate that if you implement the Essential Eight on your, your corporate IT infrastructure or your systems, that you'll mitigate a large percentage of the, the risks out there. Okay. So that would be my starting my starting point. But um, my observations, obviously it goes down to different levels of depths. If you're dealing with you know, state actors from other countries for, for big, um, you know, more secret capabilities is a bit of a different ball game, but uh, it really depends on the, on the situation, the resources you have and the expertise. So the first thing that i got that I take away from that is I really like that point of where are your crown jewels? Because in our business, you know, we are very much a cloud-based business. So I would say the CRM number one is where's the information and that basically about our customers. I think our crown jewels is the IP on the way we do business, um, not necessarily our data. However, for some people, the data is everything, you know, particularly if you've got, as you mentioned, uh, Patents in patents in action and you're designing things. And, you know, I, I guess the other point is, is who's going to take it? Because for me, it almost feels like cyber, we should be looking at this. This is not a matter of if it will happen, but when it'll happen. So you will, your business will sooner or later be attacked or compromised in some way. And you're either doing your best to get out in front of that or what risks are really there for you. Yeah. Yeah. And my observations are a lot of the time it's the simple stuff that gets you. So if you're not encrypting your passwords or you don't even know where your data is or you know, small business, a big risk for small business is ransomware attacks where you know all of your information gets uh, hashed and you can't access it and you know you need to pay them crypto or whatever the situation is. And that's happening in the health industry as well and some other areas. Um, you know, a simple mitigation for that is having backups that you can then restore your, your information and operations for. So again, it's knowing where your information is as a start, because I'd, I'd hazard a guess that a lot of people don't. They think it's in the cloud and I'm sorted, but unfortunately that's not always the case. Is it residing in even which country is a good starting point? Um, then again, even as a business owner, if you're not cybersecurity savvy, it's still a risk to your business. And hopefully you're doing risk assessments and risk management for your business, include those types of risks and then you can mitigate it. So again, if we, what's the impact and the risk? It might be extreme. The business is dead. If all our information's unavailable for three days or our system goes down for three days, well, then you put a mitigation in place, which might be, 
we are going to invest in a decent backup system or, or have a backup cloud instance so we can restore within one hour. But it's quite a logical process to, and time that you need to spend working through, through that. And it really should come back to risk a lot of the time as well. I think one of the big things here is um, you do what you're good at and let other people do what they're good at. So, for example, um, in my car now, when I, when I had my old Kingswood, I used to be able to open the bonnet and pretty well change anything on there. I could change a water pump, fuel pumps, you know, carburetor or whatever. Nowadays, if I open the bonnet of my car, there's three yellow bits, right? There's put the water in here, put the oil in there, and put the, uh, and put the windscreen wiper stuff over there. Don't touch anything else. Okay, just don't touch it. And I think with uh, we should be looking at cybersecurity. So number one, you need to have a level of savviness or understanding the risks. But this is why people like you and Blue Ridge are so important because, like I said, you've got you know three guys plus a team with many, many, many years experience. And I guess the important thing about using a company like yours is being abreast of the next challenge and understanding what the next thing down the path is. So if we get you in to do an assessment on the business, what happens after that? What's the next steps? Yeah, and you know, we like to conduct a, and work with the business on a more of a holistic assessment and risk assessment with them because they do understand their business better than anyone. I've seen that at times because people don't know where to start, they may just go buy a, a product as in a software product like an antivirus or or a firewall or something and think they're sorted. But that, you know, is maybe protecting one component of all of this um, or not if it's not configured and managed properly. So it's much more than just buying a, pro a cybersecurity product to protect you. It's also about the people and the processes. So we break it down into people, process, technology. Um, you know, it can be the people that, well, they do say that people are the weakest link. Whereas sometimes the focus a lot is just on the next shiny technology piece. So I like the holistic people process technology uh, approach when we're looking at cybersecurity. So come in, do a, do a holistic assessment with all, all of that said, work out where the risks are. And then as per normal, you know, normal business, even risk management, treating the risks depending on your budget and, and where the highest risks are. Because again, um, you've only got finite resources and, and you can only do so much. So you really, obviously, once you know the risks, which a lot of the time isn't known, uh, treat the, the highest risks with the resources you have. And you may actually be able to accept some of the other risks. And that's the process you work through. And then you manage those risks as well, which sometimes can get left. So you do your risk assessment and forget about it for a few years, yeah. um, managing the risk on an ongoing basis as well as risks and threats do change out there. It really brings me back to one of the principles of military mindset for business, which is planning. Yeah. And a lot of what says so a couple of things here, there is defense in depth or how we had layered defensive um, positions. Um, but interesting from a planning perspective is I do a lot. So number one, I do a lot of work with, you know, business owners and number one, if they have a plan in the first place, which is rare enough, that plan is always based around great things that'll happen. Like I'm going to do this and then we'll, uh, then we'll create more sales, which will give me more money to do that. And then after that, I'll do this. 
Whereas from the military perspective, we're planning for things that will go wrong, expecting the plan to change, looking for things that will go wrong. So when that situation does pop up, we have some redundancy, we have some ability to have been prepared so we can take advantage of that opportunity. Um, you know, one of the things I always say is like retreat is okay because retreat's just, you know, protecting your assets, um, you know, reorientating, recalibrating yourself for the next push, but you can't be defeated. Refeat's okay. You can't be defeat though. When you're looking at um, doing cyber work in businesses, cybersecurity work, how does layered defenses and this planning for what could go wrong really feed into that structure of business? Yeah, defense in depth is a cybersecurity principle as well. Um, but yeah, I guess I come back to the, the people process technology with that layering in mind. Because again, if you go spend a million dollars on all the, the greatest kit, but then your employees can walk out of the business with all of your information when they they leave and they're disgruntled and there's no you know offboarding process, and that would be like a process, um, then you've got a gaping hole. So it has to be that holistic defence in depth layered approach, absolutely. And there's a few um, frameworks and, and things out there now. It's the information available for people has greatly improved. And there's some entities that help businesses like the Australian Cybersecurity Centre uh, that have guides for small business and things like that, which probably didn't exist a few years ago. Um, but again, it's having the expertise to, to digest and implement those things. But it's very different for a, you know, a sole mum and pop shop at home than a you know, big defence entity. Um, but there's always a lot of sort of simple things you can do to greatly reduce the going back to risk, um, greatly reduce your risk. And that might be you've got a home router in your office and it's just you starting up a business. Well, is there any security on that router, which is probably a few settings you can build in, uh, probably reduce your risk a whole, a whole lot. Um, training and awareness for your staff. Again, that's not the... The sexy stuff, but if you, your staff have a cybersecurity, say, annual training, which we do as well, um, you may greatly mitigate, mitigate your risks of someone clicking on that link, which a lot of the time is where the entry point is. Someone clicks all the way up from the CEO down, uh, can click that link, and that gives them an entry, entry point into your system. It's interesting you do the um, people process technology piece um, because it's a little bit accidental, I, I believe, but uh, our pyramid of the military mindset model is based on five Ps. At the bottom, it's what's your purpose? You know, why do you exist? You know, and, the, and that comes from army mission statements, things like that. After we know why we exist, we plan for it to come into to reality. So we have our purpose and then we have our planning, but the top three are far more executional process platforms and people so process we're always on the quest for the perfect process and that's why we named our business trust the process because it's process for me is how do we capture excellence and repeat it how do we find consistency in what we do and then once we have our process our process empowers our platforms or drives leverage through our platforms and then supports our people to do which are the capstone at the top so i just think it's um it's, it's a great alignment of the way we think that your PPT um, uh, process people and technology is the same, same as our 
process people and platforms. Yeah, there you uh, go. It, it's this <laughs> the natural extrapolation of the military experience into business, mate. So yeah. it's great to see. Um, so if you're a business owner out there um, and you haven't considered cybersecurity, how can they get in touch with Blue Ridge to have a chat with you guys to see if you're the right fit? Yeah, the best way is jump on our website, which um, has a fair bit of information on it now, um, which is www.blueridge.com. Blue Ridge with a Y. Uh, sometimes people go with the I. So blueridge.com or um, contact at blueridge.com email. But if you jump on the website, you can send through an inquiry. Perfect. Mate, yeah, we'll throw them in the... Yeah, we'll throw them in the show notes, but B-L-U-E-R-Y-D-G.com, blueridge.com. Um, and what's next? Oh, sorry, I forgot to um, mention, and I know you're far too humble to bring it up, but you won a pretty significant award uh, a little while ago. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, we've won a, won a few, but the one was pretty special. Is uh, We've won the Canberra Small Business Awards as well. Um, but yeah, late last year, we won the Prime Minister's Veteran Employment Awards for all the work that we do in the veterans community. And, and like I said, have a large amount of veterans that we upskill um, and turn into cybersecurity professionals, which is extremely fulfilling and something I'm quite passionate about on the, on the people side. There is a huge shortage of cybersecurity professionals in Australia and internationally as well. Um, so yeah, it's very, very cool that we can actually grow and uh, contribute to the cybersecurity ecosystem. There's, so that's a big one for people looking for careers on, on a growth, growth field. And currently, we're uh, yeah we're finalists, and the events next week is the inaugural Australian Cybersecurity uh, Awards as well. So fingers crossed for that one. Well done, mate. Well, that recognition yeah. hasn't happened by accident. You know, it's a you know it's a factor of you know the leadership of you and your team and the great services that you deliver. Now, just on the size of the secure uh, cyber industry, I heard a stat the other day, and I you know, this is uh, not verified or anything, but that America, so USA in 10 years time will need a million more cybersecurity specialists. Like that's how yeah. big this industry is growing. And I guess so, if I can wrap this up, um, it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when that your business will be vulnerable or will be directly attacked. Actually, just a, a little bit of a segue into uh, um, an episode that's coming up shortly is I'll be chatting with um, Vedra Maslik, who is uh, a military ethicist. And what we're going to be talking about is uh, in the military, we're allowed to do some pretty horrific stuff for what is quite a noble career. You know, we talk about it all being, you know, so, you know, we do this stuff when we come home for tea and medals and all of this thing. But uh, in the military, basically, we are allowed to lie cheat, faint, manipulate, uh, sabotage, destroy, and ultimately kill at will to achieve our means, you know, uh, and we do that in the operational space to win. Now, what we'll be talking about is how military ethics apply to business. Now, for me, I see there's three distinct levels of how vulnerability works um, with your competitors. So number one, it's so it is strip steal and sabotage. So number one, you should be stripping everything you can off your competitors. If it's public source, if it's out there and it's online and they are letting it out there for free, take as much as you can 
and make sure you have an innate and a deep understanding of what your competitors are competitors are doing. I guarantee you Qantas knows every single cent that Virgin's doing for their for their pricing or whatever. Um, but then we cross the line into steel. Okay. And then people will overtly, you know, fake, pretend, put on some kind of facade to take information that doesn't belong to them, let alone crossing a threshold of sabotage. Now, so we're going to be doing that chat um, coming up in a in an episode not too long. So it should be a really interesting discussion wow. on, hey, you know, like in the military, we're so noble and we're all, you know, we're such these great people, but you now we'll lie, cheat and steal and kill where required. Yet business sometimes has a murkier reputation. But wow. yeah, I'm all about stripping off my competitors, but we won't steal or sabotage. You know? yeah. So it's interesting. The, the, yeah, it's interesting, the morality. But just because we doesn't do it, doesn't mean your competitors aren't doing it to you. Yeah. Whether it be a malicious act or an, or an accidental act, um, yeah. you need to yeah. prepare for that. Yeah. So at the end of the day, like something I'm, I'm really proud of um, as for the company as a whole, and obviously the founders is like, it is all about integrity, trust first and foremost. And absolutely. I mean, all our focus has been, which isn't rocket science is, look after our people and deliver quality and actual tangible outcomes for our customers. And we always try and just come back to those two simple tenets, um, but always do the right thing. Integrity like permeates throughout the whole company. And Blue we could actually be a lot bigger um, than we are, quite a lot bigger, but uh, we won't compromise on that. So uh, we'd rather grow sustainably and, and make sure we're, we're always staying true to, to our values. So that's a, that's a heavy topic then you just mentioned. Yeah, it should be, it should be good fun. Yeah. Um, and Jim, I think that's, um, I'm a passionate advocate of veteran entrepreneur, entrepreneurship and getting, you know, people making a conscious choice to choose veteran community businesses and to make that choice. And, and this is one of the reasons like people like yourself who have you know, character and integrity, when you, these traits or characteristics that come through part of our you know, military upbringing and the fabric of who we are as military personnel, we now then take these uh, these values into, into business. I'm just making sure I don't contradict myself there when I talk about all of the lying and the stealing and the killing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about the character side of it, the character side of it. Mate, um, killing a business. But yeah. No, there's not, hopefully. Um, Jim, really interesting, really interesting to chat, mate. It's really given me an awareness of, you know, a raised awareness of my vulnerability in business and what we're doing. Like right now, I do not know exactly where every bit of my information is. I know there's some in AWS services in the US. Where's Google Cloud based? I don't really know that question. What about our our proposal software, all our finance and zero. And, you know, we've probably got 10 off the shelf platforms, Stripe, you know, all this other kind of stuff that I really don't know where that data is, to be honest. Um, so that's my big takeaway is um, where's my crown jewels? I really, mate, I better, better go and have a look. Yeah. Make sure this, better make sure they're still there. Give you something to do on the weekend. <laughs> Definitely. Jim, thanks for joining us. Um, Blue Ridge with a Y.com. Um, if you it. want to talk to uh, a serious player who knows what they're on about um, and get that foundation guidance about what you can do in business to protect you know, your assets, um, get in touch with Jim and his team. Thank you very much, mate.
Thanks, Pete. Appreciate it. A pleasure. Um, okay, that wraps it. Another episode of Military Mindset for Business. Uh, my name's Pete Liston. Out.